Good morning. So great to be with you guys this morning. All right, this is one of those moments where your Bible should begin to automatically flop open to John chapter 17. That's where we have been for a few weeks, and that's where we will be for a few weeks more. So today, if I was selling a product, the church was a storefront, uh, if there was anything that we were selling to the general public, it would, it would be a product called the John 17 Life. I'm going to sell you the John 17 Life, and that's what we're going to read about today in just a moment. But let me just pull us into self-awareness for a second, just in terms of what we are experiencing, each one of us, as we, as we do life. It's probably safe to say that every person watching or here uh, is, is on some kind of a quest to be fully alive, right? Almost everything that we're doing is about just taking whatever life is to us to another level, just, just more of, of something, right? Whether you are reading at the beginning of the year a self-help book or some kind of self-improvement thing, or you've got the latest productivity app downloaded on your phone. Well, you know, what's that about? Well, so I'm, I'm just trying to upgrade life a little bit. I'm trying to get a little bit more into the space of what I'm experiencing. Or, or maybe you studied psychology when you went to college, or maybe you've had some form of uh, counseling or therapy, or you've read books about struggles and problems. Uh, you know, a lot of that's, what, what is that? It's that? That's us trying to make sense of our life experience, where we've come from, things that have interacted with us, that have maybe damaged us or limited our ability to kind of do life at a better level. Or, or maybe we just want, uh, we just want to make more money. Uh, we, we want some new experiences in life. We want to go somewhere different. We want to own something different than what we have. We want a bigger version of this, a more mature version of it. We want, we want life to get wider than it has been for us. And, and every one of those acts, it says something about whatever we possess of life right now. Says what I have right now kind of needs to be added to. And I, I'm, I, I don't know that I've met too many people ever who have found themselves in a place where they're, they're, their feel, when you interact with them, their feel for life is like, no, no, that's good. I'm good. Really, in everything, I'm good. Not looking to expand in any direction, not looking to change anything, not looking for something new. I, mean, I think the reality is we're on a little bit of a quest for life. Uh, Paul Tripp in his book, A Quest for More, he says, have you ever wanted to invest yourself in something worthwhile? You ever wondered why your life seems to lack meaning or purpose? Have you ever been disappointed when a position, achievement, possession, or relationship failed to fulfill you? You ever dreamed that somehow, some way, you would be part of something truly great? There's woven inside each of us a desire for something more, a craving to be part of something bigger, greater, more profound than our relatively meaningless day-by-day existence. Is it possible, I think I wrote in your outline, is it possible that humanity can spend a lifetime seeking a substitute to what is referred to in this chapter, in this prayer? Jesus is going to pray a prayer about what we're going to call the John 17 life. Is it possible that many of us could spend a lifetime seeking a substitute to what he's describing and what he is asking the Father about in our lives? So here's where this comes from. John chapter 17. We are, we are flying through this, aren't we? We're all the way to chapter, I mean, verse three. <laughs> uh, when Jesus had spoken these words, right? For those of you just joining us, these words are the evening he spent with his disciples from John chapter 13 all the way to this moment. All the things that they discussed, his last few hours with his dear friends and disciples. When he had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour 
has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, that's where we were last week, for what? To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, what a moment for you to stop and pray with earnestness and a heart filled with anticipation of, of something ultimate. And what clarity this brought to those disciples and what clarity it brings to us today. You turned in this moment to speak of that which would bring ultimate glory to the Father. Of authority that had been given to you to accomplish something. Lord, let us in no way be dull to what that actually is and what it means for every one of us who from the moment we could cry our first cry, we began a quest for life. Oh God, give us ears to hear what you are describing here in this passage today to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, two things that uh, are, are just screaming obvious to me in, in this passage that cannot be scooted past very quickly. One is, in this moment, Jesus draws attention to this one thing, right? I mean, ultimately, we've already, we've already sketched this out. Ultimately, whatever is going to happen in the details of our lives and in the, de the details of the universe, ultimately, it is for the glory of God. That's the umbrella everything is sitting under. But then he's going to get specific here. And he's going to say one thing in particular. You gave me authority, as we said last week. You gave me the right to exercise power to give eternal life to men. That is the ultimate exchange between God and his creatures. The ultimate exchange is that. It is for the glory of God, but it is an encounter. It is an experience. And then he immediately goes color commentary on us here, right? So there, th th this prayer is so helpful because there are things being asked of God. And there are reasons for these things to be asked that Jesus is informed by. We need to know both. But here's a little color commentary piece, right? It's kind of like, you know, you guys are going to watch ball games today. You're going to hear the guy analyze the play. And then the other guy is going to do color commentary, right? He's going to bring alongside that this guy just tackled that. He's going to tell you something about the surrounding details of that particular player or something that went on in that play being called. Well, here Jesus brings some color commentary because he just states, here's what's happening here in this moment in history. The authority you gave me, it's for this purpose, to give life to man. Oh, and by the way, this is eternal life, that they know you. Now, I don't know what that does for you, and I want to I venture into both of these categories, but Jesus clarifies and explains something with that statement. And we'll, we'll try and do both here. I'm going to be pressed for time, I think, to try and get to both. But I'm going to do my best to speed through a couple things here to get to that second point. But there is something happening here where life is being given to men, and a big deal is being made out of it. Is this really a big deal? Now, if you and I have read our Bibles a little bit, we know that it is. But, but quite honestly, there are some things that are big deals that maybe we're overlooking. I think a lot of us do overlook this. I think the casual onlooker to religion overlooks what's being said here. Right, so there are things that can be added to your life that, that you notice when they're added. They're big deals. You know, when a, when a baby is born in your home, big deal, big change. Um, you know, we've just gone through a, a year's worth of house repairs uh, not to insult Gus, I'm, I don't know if he's here or not, but you know, there, there's not a whole lot of celebration in getting a roof put on your house, is there? It, it's kind of like, did you, you don't really notice it anyway. You don't, you, the only thing, you, you notice it when water drips through your ceiling. That's when you notice, ooh, I have a roof and there may be something wrong with it. But no one's like, guess what, for Christmas, I'm getting a roof to replace the other one that just sat up there and did nothing. Um, this is not a, a moment where it's like, oh, we're getting a beach house for Christmas, 
right? That's a different, oh, well, that'll be, that's a lot of fun, right? Look at that. We get to go there from now on and do vacations there. That's going to be awesome. All right, well, so whatever Jesus is talking about here, is it a big deal? I have been given authority to give eternal life to men. Well, that's a little bit interesting because isn't there always already a sense of life in us? Aren't we already alive? What, what, what did they hear when they heard these words? And you'll see in scripture, that's not really clear to people all the time, and it may not be really clear to us. So the first observation I want to make in this passage is, uh, you can be alive in one sense, but not in another. That was clear to Jesus. It's clearly in the Bible. Right, so let me take us back all the way to the very beginning. We're going to venture into Genesis here. And, and if we went all the way back to the beginning, perhaps the first episode, you know, you guys who binge watch stuff, this is like episode one, and the title would be Life and Death. Right? Episode one, Life and Death. Genesis chapter two, verse seven. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So episode one installs what is the idea of life. And you have something here that has two pieces in it. You have formation and you have breath from God. So you have these two pieces that once they're together, then you have this living creature. And then we travel a little bit further, just a few verses on from Genesis 2 to verse 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. All right, so episode one has introduced life to us. It now introduces death to us. Now, you and I have a definition for death. We've experienced some things that we call death, some things we call dying, but something's going to happen here that gives us episode one's definition for life and death. Now, everybody, if you've read the Bible, even if you haven't read the Bible, you know something of this story. There is a moment in which man is, is doing life. He's experiencing something. He's, he's daily routines and activities. And then the day comes. The day that God clearly spelled out. If you do this, you will die. On that day. So what happened in that moment, right? If, if, if you can access a Bible real quickly, these two verses back to back are extremely telling. I didn't put it in your outline, but Genesis chapter three, verse six, and then verse seven. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. All right, there's a the day. And she also gave to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. All right, stop. If you hadn't read any further and you never read the story, what, what sound do you think should come next? Thud? <laughs> you know, gasping for air? We know better, right? But that is what we would think because we have an understanding of death. And that understanding of death informs our understanding of life. And so we're anticipating that if you're going to die, you're going to keel over. And there's going to be no pulse, no brain activity. You're going to be lying dead on the floor. You're not going to be doing anything else. But watch what the next words here are in verse 7. Then, right? They just ate. This is the day. Then the eyes of both were opened. What? Is this what you thought death was going to look like? And they knew that they were naked. Now, that knowledge becomes a problem, but two new things happened to them in this moment. 
Their eyes were open, and their eyes were open before, but not like this. Their eyes are opened in a new way. They, they see their reality differently. And not only that, they have knowledge. They begin to know things that just moments ago, they didn't know that. They, I mean, how would you feel in this moment? You're seeing things that you hadn't seen before, and you're knowing things that you hadn't known before. And yet the label that God puts on this is dead. You are now dead. Are you traveling with me? Is this, is this I mean, I know this, we've read this a hundred times, but this informs what you hear when you hear Jesus pray in John chapter 17. There is a phraseology in the scripture, right? And this is a little different. I take a little bit of a risk of associating these two. In Revelation chapter 3, you get this presentation of the, the Lord going among the churches in Revelation. And he says, to the angel of the church in Sardis writes, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. So there's activity going on here. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. All right, so can, you, can, can we get, from a biblical standpoint, these words can go together. Alive and dead can go together. They're in the Bible right next door to each other quite often. Right, so if I had titled this creatively and put a little different image up today, it, it would be something from The Walking Dead. This is the first zombie presentation. Because in one sense, these people are alive. But in another sense, they're dead. And that's Adam and Eve. By the way, that's everybody who descends from Adam and Eve from now on. They are zombies. This is a race of zombies. They are alive, and we would be part of that race. We are alive. We are capable of activity. Our eyes are open to a lot of things. We have knowledge about stuff. So this is not an easy thing to notice. That doesn't make me feel dead. That makes me feel very alive. I see things. I know things. So this is a little bit of a surprise definition. And it's, when Jesus shows up, he is interacting with life and death with an accurate understanding of episode one. And he's always, he's always talking about this unique aspect of life as he ministers to others, right? Race through this with John. I'm going to hang out with John a little bit because John is the one who highlights this aspect of, of Jesus' prayer in John 17. But he has heard this life being spoken of all over the place, and he presents it to us very well. John chapter 3, the inspired writer of the Gospel of John in verse 3 says, Jesus answered him. We know him to be this man, Nicodemus, a, a religious, decent man doing life, coming to Jesus with a question. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, wait, wait, wait. How can a man be born when he is old? You know, I understand he's saying, not only is he old, he's been alive for a long time time, hasn't he? How can you be talking about that guy in that condition? How can life come to this guy? He's old. He's already alive. He's already been doing life for a long time. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is a zombie. Oh, I'm sorry, it doesn't say that. But that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So for Jesus, the discussion of life was never confusing. It was always, you think you're alive. And in some sense you are, but you're not fully alive. 
and you qualify to be called dead. John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so I am on a mission. I am here for a purpose, which he clarifies again when he prays. You gave me authority. You gave me the power and the right to give life. That's why I'm here. I am here to do that, that they may have life. Wait, wait, well, Jesus, I, I think I'm good. Who does this apply to? Should we go visit a cemetery? This is a challenge to the idea of whatever is in us. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I know I'm having a conversation with you. And I know there's brainwave activity and you speak the same language and you do a lot of stuff, but you don't have what I'm talking about. John 14, 6. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the life. Now, this is an interesting definition, isn't it? Life is just not described as activity. It's not just described as what courses through your veins and brain activity. It's not even described as an emotional experience. It, it's not the satisfying of our emotions, the ability for us to conceive things in our minds and think. It, it, it's not the stuff that we typically call life. Jesus comes right out and says, I am the life. And he says, no one, listen, comes to the Father except through me. So now... He has associated this life with coming to the Father, which is exactly what he does in John 17, isn't it? When he unpacks the idea that there is this thing called life, I came to give it to you. Oh, and by the way, color commentary, uh, what is life anyway? It is knowing God. Right? Do you understand how, if, just pay attention. This is where you, if you sit too much in the cheap seats and eat your popcorn in church, you, you won't catch these things. And when you read your Bible that way, you won't catch them. So if life is about a connection with, whatever word you want to use, relationship, knowledge of, Jesus uses those words, with the Father, and that life is only through Jesus Christ, which is what he says in John chapter 17, and this is eternal life, that they would know thee, the one true God, and Jesus Christ. Not because they're two different beings, but because that Father is only made known and accessible through Jesus Christ. Only. There is no access to the life that he's describing here, that connection to the Father, where now you are connected to him and there's an exchange taking place. He uses the word no to describe that exchange. But there is no access to that Father apart from Jesus Christ. Now you see that in verses like John chapter 14 and John chapter 17 and throughout the scriptures, by the way. And the very uncomfortable thing that it does is it dissettles the, the tone of humanity this day. Where in some ways, whatever you believe is kind of up to you. And who am I, right? I mean, who am I? I mean, really. Who am I to question what you believe? That, that you don't even believe this stuff. But you believe you're right with God. Who am I to tell you you're wrong? Well, really, quite honestly, I'm nobody. I, I really, I'm nobody. If you want to know my background, I am nobody. I grew up in River Ridge. I'm nobody. So these are big, giant concepts, right? Who, by the way, I don't know who else you're talking to. Somebody else grew up in Metairie. They're nobody too. <laughs> no insult here, but, you know, Harahan, you're still nobody. Whatever. Uptown, you're still nobody. You just don't think you're nobody. <laughs> just, just saying. West Bank, you know you're nobody. I, sorry, Phil, I heard you over there. <laughs> All right, so we live amongst a bunch of nobodies who are trying to tell us something about who we are. Uh, but the Bible says this, the revelation of the, the one true God written down consistently to reveal something to us points us to the reality that there is this life that comes from a particular type of connection, not a mere awareness that there is something higher out there, but a particular connection that he uses the word knowing to describe. And he says, that's not possible apart from Christ. So as uncomfortable as that may be to you, it is the facts. I don't get to avoid them because they're uncomfortable, because they may exclude some people that matter to me, that believe something differently than I believe. This is not about what I believe. It's not about you personally. It's about what the Bible says. And then there's this moment. Jesus has accomplished the work. He says, it is finished, and the resurrection takes place. And then we have this conversation between Jesus and his disciples in John chapter 20. 
and you get a hint of episode one. And when he had said this, right, this is post-resurrection now. He's meeting with the disciples. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Where did he get that from? Episode one. When God had formed man, and whatever he was in his formation, right? You and I have an image, I do at least. I'm like, man's like a mannequin. I mean, he looks like something, some rubber suit wax figure. He's formed just standing there lifeless. Okay, maybe, I don't know. Doesn't really say. But whatever happens, God breathes life into him. And then episode one continues, and that man becomes dead. But he's still active, and he's still doing a lot of what he used to do, and he thinks he's got some new insights on a few things as well. What died in him? The breath of life. That life imparted to him from God has died in him. So when Jesus in this moment, oh, I can't imagine. I cannot imagine the Son of God in that moment. Here. That which was lost so long ago. Here, have life once again. That's what's happening in that passage. And John, oh no, I can't see. John is going to go on and speak about this life in 1 John. So I find it interesting of John's explanation, his focus, his awareness, his understanding. When you get to 1 John, he is aware that this life that gets born in us, it, it shows up, it, it just comes to life inside of us by God's mysterious working. He's aware that that's present and he starts describing what is it like to experience that life. And he says, and I'm just going to race through these things, and, and it should inform us, maybe disturb us in some ways. First John 3, this is how he describes it. No one born of God, and he's, he, he is the theologian of the born-again experience in the New Testament. Nobody says more about being born of God than the Apostle John. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For, why? Why is that true? For God's seed abides in him. The life of God is in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Whew, that's powerful. That's worth paying attention to. That tests the reality of things. That's a statement, and don't go too far with it, because the New Testament is filled with Christians who fall short. They stumble. They do sinful things. They get bound up in stuff. They get entangled in sin. They have to overcome things. They have to discipline. They have to put things aside. There's church discipline that clearly steps into a moment and says, hey, you are a Christian. That's the only reason why we'd be bringing any kind of discipline to your life. And you're out of bounds. And you're so out of bounds that we're going to have to take some severe measures in your life to help you get back on track. So the Bible's not closing its eyes to, oh wait, does this mean Christians don't sin? No. But it does make you scratch your head a little bit when you do start to practice sin. And it should. There's something in us that doesn't want to go along with that. All right, let me just test everybody right here. Because this is, this is, this, I don't, you know, I, I'm not ready to preach from the church in Sardis uh, as to whether, was this a church full of unbelievers who you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead? Or were they, or were they believers who had a reputation for being alive, but you look like you're dead? So let's just imagine you're here this morning and you've got some attitude on the inside of your heart. You know it's wrong. And it's been sitting in you for months, for years. I, I clearly see in the New Testament God sending people to you, sending people to me to confront things like that, to bring them to our attention. I think we can go so calloused on the inside that sometimes it's got to come from the outside of us, and that's, that's in the New Testament. Teaching moments like this could be a moment for you that the lights come on and you realize, ooh, I haven't thought that way about that issue in my life. Uh, but before anybody says anything to you, the life of God is in you. The Holy Spirit is in you. 
I would be very concerned for any that if the only time you respond to an awareness of being out of bounds, of harboring things you shouldn't be, is when somebody else comes to tell you that. Listen, I mean, I I have kids who grew up in my house. You know, I have people I've known for years. I grew up in in a house. There's lots of ways that we adjust people's behavior. Lots of ways. Social pressure, shame people, throw out some rewards. You understand, we can do all kinds of right-looking things for non-internal reasons. That's not what this is about. First John is about, hey, there's something born inside of you. It is powerful. It is influential. It wins you over. It has an argument with the thing you want to keep doing, and it wins. And you stop doing it. And you begin to adjust course, and you begin to take other steps. Listen, when that's not happening, John should haunt you. By the way, First John is a haunting book. It messes with your unjustified realities, right? Because he says it over and over again. Beloved, let us love one another. Love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And this is life, that they know thee and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's what he just says here. That's what it means to be born of God, is to know God, is to be in relationship with him in a knowing exchange kind of a way. And what what does that produce? It produces love in you. Not perfect love, not love that never doesn't have to be corrected, etc., but it produces love. 1 John 5, 4, everyone who has been born of God, overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Chapter 5, verse 18, and he just says this over and over again. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning because there's a new life in you. It constantly wants to adjust the things in us that constantly want to go in the wrong direction. But he was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We're going to see that prayer from Jesus in John chapter 17. That those who have been born of God are are uniquely and specially protected by God from John chapter 17. So here's this hour, this great crescendo hour. Father, the hour has come. That it, it sits at the heart of what we need the most. That which brings ultimate glory to God is also touching what we need the most. And what exactly is that? John Piper has written an outstanding book. You can get it for free, by the way. Uh, Finally Alive. Download it into your Kindle there. Listen to what he says. Why is the new birth necessary? Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, 7, you must be born again. Not I suggested. Or your life would improve if you added this experience. Why is it that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God? This is one of the great reasons for pursuing a right knowledge of the new birth. Until we realize we must be born again and why we must be born again. Listen, we probably will not realize what our condition really is without salvation. Listen to this. Most people do not know what is really wrong with them. One way to help them make a true and terrible and hopeful diagnosis is to show them the kind of remedy God has provided, namely, new birth. That is the great flaw in the ointment of a quest for life. We get to these moments where we feel empty, unfulfilled, sidetracked. What's it all about? And we just think if I could just add that, if I could adjust this to turn into that, if I could have that relationship, if the one relationship I'm in now could morph and become this instead of what it is, then I would come alive. My quest for life, it would finally be answered. The longings on the inside of me would finally, they'd become something. Listen, I just described all of humanity. We are after something more and we're convinced that whatever it is that we've got, that's, that's the problem area. I can just tweak this, add that, change this. What's really wrong with us? It's not that I don't have the right formula or the right people or the right types of success. It's that authority was given to the Son of God to give life to us. 
We need to have life given to us. And the reason why that's so hard to hear is because we thought we were already alive. We had a lot of stuff going on. We had lots of life going on. You can be dead and busy. Is that news? I know that doesn't sound right if we go stand in the cemetery a few blocks away. Those are not busy people, are they? But according to Scripture, you can be quite dead and quite busy. Right? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, you were dead. You were dead. In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. All right, now these are confusing words. Okay, Paul, make up your mind. Was I dead or was I walking? Following the course of the world? Uh, time out. You just said I was dead, and now you're saying I'm following the course of the world. Oh, it's worse than that. You're also following the prince of the power of the air. The devil who's running around, you're following him too. All right, well, Paul, make your mind up here. Am I dead or am I following something? The spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions. <laughs> Paul, you are so confusing. You just said I'm dead, and now you said we lived in the passions of our flesh, and we're carrying out the desires. It doesn't sound very dead to me, man. Oh, no, you were dead. You totally meet the definition of dead. Even though you were very, very busy, weren't you? All right, when you fill that in, if we just fill that in, you lived in the passions of your flesh and you were carrying out the desires of the body, oh, my, can I, can I see your calendar? Can I look at your checkbook for a second? Some of us are striving and living some very, very busy lives. We've gone to get educated. We've spent incredible money to get educated in certain aspects of our lives. We've built relationships. We've gotten married. We've had children. We've invented technology. We go eat at restaurants. We download something from Netflix. We watch the Saints game. What do you mean I'm dead? I'm really, really, really don't get what you're after here. Exactly. You are dead even though you have a reputation for being alive even though you look alive you're not alive and and so what what does he give in this moment to engage us in this condition verse four but god but god being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses What did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. Now be super careful here. Let me just tell you what it doesn't say. Although this is what a lot of people will live. Even when you were dead in our trespasses, what did God do? He gave us a book. He said, don't live that way anymore. Live this way. I mean, you know, there's a subtle difference between what I just said and what some of us are living. Subtle difference. See, when, when that little phrase from Mr. Piper there, when he said this earlier, let's see if I can find it. Most people do not know what is really wrong with them. We help them to show them the kind of remedy God has provided. What kind of remedy is out there? Well, in the religion category, it's a body of information and usually a community to help you adjust your behavior. That's what's offered. Whether you, you know, join the Moonies, if you're old enough to remember those guys hanging out the public squares of our cities, and you join some kind of a hippie cult and you lived in a van and you just lived off the land and your source of doing good to everybody. What, what was that? Well, it was, it was a bunch of ideas that some people lived by and a change of behavior. You're exactly the same person. You just got some new ideas. If you decided you grew up in America and you're kind of like, you know, I've kind of been reading some teachings of, from Muhammad and you know, I, I think I'm going to turn Muslim. Okay, well, with that's going to come a whole set of expectations and behaviors that are okay and that are not okay. And you're going, to, you're going to change the way you dress and you're going to change some of your practices and you're going to do something a few times a day, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What did you get there from religion? Well, you, you got some form of a book 
joined to human effort. And I just described every faith in the world except this one. When God comes to remedy our problem, he doesn't become a cheerleader who hands us a book. He gives us a life. Because that was our problem. We didn't have this life. You were dead. Memorize this all you want. Try and emulate it all you want. You need to come alive. And that's what God did in his mercy. He brought us to life. John Piper says this matters. It matters for eternity and it matters for the glory of Christ in this life. If people are to enter finally into the kingdom of God and if the church is to let her light shine on earth that people may give glory to God, then the new birth must be experienced. When Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, he was not sharing interesting and unimportant information. He was leading him to eternal life. I was praying with the elders this morning and we were praying through what the Lord would want to do among us. And, you know, realizing I got saved as a teenager. I didn't grow up amongst genuine Christianity. So when I got saved, there was this polarizing understanding of what I had grown up with. I'd grown up around religion. I had gone to church, but, but not amongst people who lived born again type engagement with God. So there was more of a religious, had Jesus in it somehow, etc. And that's what I had been around. What if I had grown up here? What if I had grown up around the ideas of Christianity and the behaviors of Christianity? What if I had watched adults and people a little bit older than me? They don't do that, they do this. They don't go here, they they go here. They don't speak that way. They speak this way. They don't watch that. They watch this. Um, young people. Everybody wants to fit in. You grow up wanting your parents' approval. And your parents live in these categories. This is why teenage years are such bizarre years. Because at some point you're going to get to the place where, you know what? Your approval and boundaries don't quite mean as much to me. Let me see what's over here. And in that moment, you're going to discover something about yourself. That's really hard to know. I've just let all your parents have a little bit of a soften up a little bit moment. Because lots of people can imitate the out externals of the kingdom of God. Lots of people can. Listen, I mean, I... I I know people's stories in here. Can I just tell you, there are lost people out there who live better than some of you do. And this is being serious. In this room, there are people who have done things that I can find unbelievers who haven't done that. They figured out how to find a code and live it. Whatever it was. Their family stood for something. They would never do that because for some reason, it doesn't make sense for them to do that. They'd never do that. You can be in church. You can be raised in church. You can walk for years and years and years and be amongst a certain set of outside principles. And you can have a reputation for being alive. And you can be sitting in this room today and you are dead. Don't let this verse skip past you too fast. There is something that happens to us when this new life comes to us that begins to float life from the inside out. It begins to be desires that you didn't used to have. It begins to be shaping and boundaries that you don't have to be shamed and cornered into things. There's something in you that doesn't want to do that anymore. I don't want to do that anymore. I really, I don't really want to do it. Keith, how hard was it for you to not do drugs again after you got saved in 1979? I'd have to tell you, it was pretty easy. Now, I know some people struggle in these categories differently. That's just, just my story and my experience. It was easy because... I didn't want to anymore. Something changed in me. There was this new thing on the outside. Can I tell you, I didn't, 
I hadn't found a church yet. I didn't live amongst a community. There wasn't anybody there to pressure me into doing things. I lived the first few years of my Christian life with a, a couple of novices who couldn't find their Bibles either. And so we didn't know what the heck we were talking about. But there was something in us that we wanted to do certain things. Something convicted us out of nowhere. It's like, oh, that ain't right. I don't, I don't want to do that anymore. And stop doing it. It would change. This is, our problem is the life. Here, here, Adam, you want to, you want to live for the glory? You want to live for the glory of God? Here you go. And he made a decision that he became dead. What did he need? He didn't just need a book anymore, did he? He needed life to return, and he needed the book. And I want to make sure you catch the second part of this passage. Because there is an association here, isn't there? Because as soon as Jesus said, I, I came, and I've got authority, I'm the one person. Remember, he said to this, I've got all authority, by the way, guys. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. To give eternal life to all whom the Father has given me. I have the power and the right to do it. Oh, oh, by the way, make sure you catch this. This is eternal life, that they know the one true God and Jesus whom he has sent. That's eternal life. So, so let me just point this one last point out before I pray for us. There is a uniqueness to what Jesus says when he says the only true God, that they may know the only true God. It eliminates that there's multiple opportunities for us to come into life the way Jesus is describing it, apart from God the Father. There, there isn't. You know, Jesus is the life. The Father is the life. What, Adam, what you have from me is my life. That's what you have. So there isn't life apart from that. Is there activity apart from that? Yes, there's lots of activity. You could be dead in the garden and your eyes come open to all kinds of things. You're not alive. And in this passage, what... What is happening is you are coming alive. And he uses a word here that is critical to how you and I live our lives. It's the word knowing. This is life, that they would know you. There's something about exchanging life with God that is described by the word knowing. And this speaks to our definition of life. What do you and I call in life? What's our quest for? What are we trying to fill our lives up with more and more and more and more of what? Jesus comes around and says, hey, hey. You sure you got the right definition? Here, this is life. Knowing God, that's life. That doesn't mean you don't do the other stuff, by the way. I mean, remember, here, have life, Adam. And by the way, uh, go dig the gold out of the ground over here and go tend the garden and subdue the earth. He was going to do all that. He, he had a full-time job. But life was in knowing God for him, too as it is for us as well. And, and this is what it feels like on the inside. You want to trace it out? The Psalms, the Psalms are these internal playbooks that show you, hey, it's one thing for us to talk about the theory of this. Paul, thank you very much for all the doctrinal elements. The Psalms, they just kind of go right to the heart. They can run right to the emotions and say, hey, what's this feeling like on the inside of you? Well, two quick thought, yeah, examples. Psalm 42, verse one. As a deer... Pants for flowing streams. So pants my soul. For what? For you, oh God. To get an A on that test? Well, no, I'd like to get an A on that test. To close that big deal? I'd like to close the big deal. It's pretty important. But that's not what my soul is panting for. My innards are desperate for something. What is it? It's what Adam lost in the garden. It's God. My soul has these inner longings, this thirst for God. That's what my soul is educating me about. Hey, all you're aware of is, man, I, I need something besides what's in here right now. That, I just need something. And so the quest for more begins. And we try this and we try that. And we exchange this and we divorce this one when we marry that one. We do all those things because something on the inside of us is going, I'm not satisfied. I'm not satisfied. What a mistake we make, isn't it? If we don't get John chapter 17, verse 3. Because what, what is your soul after? It's after God. When 
shall I come and appear before God? Come and appear. And I don't, I don't overlook that, right? Desperation when I'm longing. But then there's, there's something mechanical that you actually do. I, I come and appear before God. All right, Psalm 63 unpacks this a little bit more. Verse one, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. So, so now there's activity in this exchange with God. There's something that's going to produce knowing in this. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh, it faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That's what I liken it unto. It's like living in a place that's just dried up. It's hot. It's taken something from me. But listen, this is the mistake we make to think that if I fix the dry land, I will fix my soul. No, that's an illustration. It's not the answer. If I could just get rid of that person who's drying up my life, you're toxic, you're taken from me, I'm just drained by you, you're difficult. If I could just get rid of that, man, then I I could have life. (laughs) Your soul is not thirsting for that. It's thirsting for God. That's what it wants. Verse two. So I have looked upon you. Oh, so you did something. Yes, I looked in the sanctuary. Oh, in a particular place? Yes, the place God highlighted that he would hang out and his presence would be. And all those lessons that helped you see things from laying your hands on sheep and shedding blood and burning incense and all those things that were helping you see something about God beholding, I was actually seeing something. This is, this is knowing language, right? Your power and glory. Verse three, because your love is better than life. Whatever is in you, the steadfast covenant love that you give to me, it's better than whatever this thing is that I'm doing. What a distinction, right? My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. What a wonderful thing to do for us. Thank you for the inspired word of the psalmist there. You do recognize fat and rich food does provide a form of satisfaction, doesn't it? Otherwise, this is a dumb statement to make, right? He didn't say, uh, my soul will be satisfied as with motor oil, you know, (laughs) as with something disgusting and putrid. He reached for something that was alive in some sense. The satisfaction that comes to us from eating a really good meal. That, by the way, God provided. There's a land of milk and honey. But that land is not God. And you remember God warning them on the way in? Lest you forget me. But he still wanted them to enjoy the land. So this is, you might think you're alive and be dead. And you might even be a Christian who, you think you're alive, but you're living like you're dead. There is an exchange with God that is satisfying to the soul. Not just hypothetically satisfying. It is satisfying to the soul. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. All right, I'm going to ask you to do a survey in a minute. In your own souls, we pray together. Can you look for those three words just in that one line? Satisfaction, praise, and joy. How satisfied. How satisfied is your soul right now? What is praise sounding like? See, that's important. I love the fact that all these words are in the same sentence. Because you and I can have joy. I mean, let's face it. If the saints win today, there's going to be some joy in this city. Rightly so. (laughs) But praise to the one true God? Probably not. Win or lose, Lots of people are going to ignore the God of the universe. So I love that there is satisfaction here and there is joy here, but there is praise. There is an orientation toward God. There is a responding to God in this passage here. My soul thirsts for that. 
to know God in such a way that when life happens and God touches the inside of me, I turn to him and I praise him because I'm aware something more than just what's right here is going on and it comes from him. It's the knowledge of him that's active in my soul. Listen, when I remember you, I'm thinking, this is knowing, when I remember you on my bed and I meditate on you, this is knowing, in this is life that they know you, this is what knowing is in the watches of the night. For you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. You guys can go meditate on that Ephesians passage. I won't take time to go through it. Uh, Seth, go ahead and come back up, buddy. The big moment, big deal in all the Bible. Don't, don't lose this, right? Don't, don't lose this. We've already we carefully moved our way towards this exchange with man. It is highlighting the greatest need for man. It is highlighting something that you and I are going to experience in our lives that will have powerful impacts on us, but it is not ultimate. The giving of life to a human being, as big as that is, as desperate as it is that we need it, it is not ultimate. What's ultimate in that passage? Do not lose this. What's ultimate in that passage? Glory is ultimate in that passage. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your name. That's ultimate. That's why any of this stuff exists. That's why anything happens. If you don't start with that, this is what I understand man-centeredness and God-centeredness to be, be sitting on. If you start with, how does this feel for me? What does this do for me? What about all the people? What about the ones who haven't had this experience, Keith? What about them, huh? They, they go into hell. You, you know why you're arguing that? Because you've taken up man's interest first. Man's interest is not first in this. God's glory is first in this. And what I understand about God is that puts humanity in the very best place it could ever be in. If you want to start with man, what a mistake you are making. Because man doesn't deserve for any of this to ever happen. You want to start with man? What if I start with God? Who says, hey man, I got this because I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. So you know why you have hope? Because I'm a God who chooses to have mercy, not because of something in you. You want to start with man? You got no hope. You got no mercy. And you got nobody ever turning to God. Right? You've got a, you've got a, this is a tangled up, theologically deep passage that we're messing with here. Because you just read about I have all right and power to give eternal life to who? To everybody? To those that you have given me. That's eye-opening, isn't it? And it's there. Jesus is theologically informed. And the God of the universe has the right to do exactly that. And what I know about this God who loves to the point of sending his own son and human flesh to be murdered on a cross in shame is that God does not lack love. If there was another way to do this that would answer some of our concerns, that loving God with all of his wisdom would be doing it. He is doing that which answers to himself. He is bringing glory to the God who is wise, powerful, loving. He is everything in perfection. And that's what's happening in this verse. Let me go back to this for us. Jesus came for an exchange with us. He's going to glorify the Father by touching the greatest need in every one of our lives. What is that greatest need? What did it feel like was your greatest need this past week? To finally find a spouse to marry? To fix feelings of loneliness, that was my greatest need. I, I get that. To have your husband or your wife respond differently to you than they have been for a decade now. To get past the distance and the brokenness that's in your soul between each other. Is that your greatest need? 
mean, I get that that can advertise as our greatest need. To financially be able to do this or do that, because if that doesn't happen, there's a lot of bad circumstances that are coming. That feels like my greatest need. Jesus says, you know, you can be doing all those things and you can be dead. I have come that you may have life. I've come to take dead people and and breathe my life back into them. So can you you be really sure about something with him this morning? Can you trace back to a time when you feel like the breath of life showed up in you? God came on the scene in such a way that he began to work from the inside out. You, You could sense him. Convictions began to show up. You adjusted your life, not because you had to, but because something in you just wanted to. There was a joy that began to flood your soul, a sense of satisfaction that you didn't have before. And you oriented that toward God through praise. What if you can't remember that this morning? What if you're sitting here this morning and going, no, I, I don't remember that happening for me. Or maybe you're watching by live stream. Well, then maybe you're alive, but you're not yet fully alive. Does that make sense? Maybe you've even been around Christian stuff, a Christian family, and you've tried to adjust your life, and you've tried to do this, you've tried to do that because it made sense, or you you felt like that's what would please others. But that moment when the breath of life comes and a new life launches from within you with new desires and new direction, that's foreign to you. Oh, what a moment you have right now. What a moment you have before you. Jesus came for this exchange. And and your heart receiving the life of God once again brings glory to the Father. And you can do that this morning. Right where you're sitting. You can have a conversation with him that by faith opens your heart to the Savior who came into this world, remember this is the end of his mission when he's in John chapter 17. The next thing he's going to do is he's going to let them nail him to a cross and bigger than the things that human beings are doing to him and the blood that's pouring out of his veins is in the unseen realm, the wrath and punishment for sin for every one of yours is being laid on him and he's taking it from you. And then he turns and says, do you believe me? You believe in who I am? You believe in what I've done? Because if you do, I want to give you my life. I want to give you what Adam lost. I want to give it back. You want it? Let's stand up together. We're going to pray. Lord, a lot of people in this room, a lot of folks watching live stream. People you had in mind, Lord Jesus, when you prayed to the Father for him to glorify you, for you to glorify him, and for you to take the authority that you have and give life to men. That's what you're doing even today, even here this morning, even for folks that are hundreds of miles away watching something through modern technology. The Son of God, the crucified, blood-shedding Son of God stands and says, I have life, real life. You want it? that if you're here or you're watching and you want it, you need to tell him you want it. You need to reach out and receive it. Don't don't act as though it's automatic. It is not. Tell him. Tell him this morning. Jesus, I want that life. I, I, I don't think I have it. But I want it. And I'm 
putting my faith in you. You were sent by the Father to restore us to him. You are the way and you are the truth and you are the life. And I believe I can come to you, to the Father by you. I I can do that. This morning, I want to do that. You said that life was about knowing you. Well, this morning, breathe upon me. Give me that life. I want to know you more and more for the rest of my days. I want to know you. Breathe upon me. Give me life. I received that by faith this morning. That you have given me a life that I didn't have and couldn't have apart from you. God, my heart is filled with praise for you. Thank you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and the life that you give to us. Lord, from this moment on, for every person who's prayed that prayer, Lord, would you fill our lives with satisfaction and joy? And Lord, would you help us? Because there's a little piece of us that's like Adam. Our eyes are open to other things. and We have knowledge of other things. And oh, Lord, would you rescue us? from running after what those eyes see and the knowledge that we have apart from you and letting it masquerade as something that could give us this life. It cannot give us this life. It gives us a form of life. The life that we need is found in knowing you. Oh God, from this moment forward, help us, Lord. Flood our hearts with a joy that comes from the satisfaction that comes from knowing you all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. God bless you guys. Hey, if there's anything happening in your life that you want prayer for this morning, that you just believe God would join you in a moment of need and he will to do something powerful or helpful, hey, come find one of our prayer team members and let them pray with you. And the rest of you guys, you guys watching, Look forward to seeing you soon, and we'll see you guys, the rest of y'all, back next week.